And a very good evening, everybody, and welcome to our Spiritual Topics Night on a Saturday night, coming from the Paul Christian Spiritualist Church in Paul, Dorset, in the UK. Very great delight to introduce a lovely gentleman to you, Mr. Jamie Aylward. Jamie is the president of the Exeter, excuse me, <laughs> take two, the Exeter Spiritualist Centre. And you're also hypnotherapist, Reiki master, and Hi what have no, I not, not Reiki master, hypnotherapist. Not Reiki master. Hypnotherapist. Thank you, pardon. Unless a new accredited healer as well, but... Ah, right. Okay, okay. I knew the healing vein came in there. So, JV, sir, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful. We're looking forward to hearing your topic for tonight. Um, I think without further ado, if we go straight into that for your presentation for us yeah. tonight. Thank Great. you. Okay, well, good evening, everybody, and thanks for coming along. Um, I wanted to put on this talk because, well, firstly, somebody tried to stop me talking about near-death experiences. They said there, there was no evidence. Uh, but also at the hypnotherapy convention the last time I went, um, it was clear that they just were totally unaware uh, of all the evidence that consciousness does continue. So um, they very kindly allowed me to speak. So um, I produced this talk. So let, let's, it's quite long, so, so I'll just crack on with it. Um, if I can get my... Um, mouse to start doing the presentation so yeah the nature of consciousness basically the current western scientific view is that everything is produced by the brain consciousness is produced by the brain now if that were to be the case then things like telepathy mediumship and all the stuff that we, we're used to just can't possibly um happen because everything is produced from a biochemical process an electrical process in the brain Essentially, if you really take that view, it means we are biological robots. Everything is determinism. Everything is happens because of a prior event. Um, well, we know we're not biological robots, but if this isn't the case, then we are spiritual beings. So the other other way to look at it is dualism. So we're a, uh, a soul within a human body. Uh, if you take that one step further. Then there's panpsychism, where consciousness is actually in everything. I'm trying to get my mouse to work there. <clears throat> so let's look at the filter theory. So, so this is this is we're a spirit in a human body, and the brain is a block, if you like, a filter, a necessary filter for us to actually continue living this life. Um, but this idea was was put out by uh, Hippocrates, first of all, 2000 years ago, and, and uh, in the early 1900s, taken up by William James and Frederick Myers. Um, and more recently, which is really quite exciting in terms of scientific awareness, um, this chap Kelly and his colleagues have produced this book called Irreducible Mind uh, towards a psychology for the 21st century. And they put forward this idea um, there. Now, all these things are evidence not only that the brain is a filter uh, of, of our higher, higher consciousness, but also that um, life continues afterwards. Now, 
many of these things just on their own um, are sufficient evidence. But if you put them all together, it really is, in my opinion, irrefutable evidence that consciousness continues and life continues. So let's look at quantum physics, um, <clears throat> the double slit experiment. So this guy called Jung, Jung um, wanted to find out whether light was a wave or a particle. So simply, as you can see in the picture there, um, double slit and shone light through it or individual photons was the idea. Um, so that if light is a particle, then you'll get a, a double slit pattern. If uh, light was a wave, uh, then you get an interference pattern. Uh, what they got was not, well, they expected to get a, a double slit and they did while they were looking at it. But what they didn't expect is that while they weren't looking at it, um, it turned into a wave. So observation collapses the wave function. Now, Max Planck, um, he, he was really the father of quantum physics. So after his research, um, this is what he he. Uh, um, he said, I regard consciousness as fundamental. I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. We cannot get behind consciousness. Everything we talk about, everything we regard as existing postulates cons consciousness. That's essentially panpsychism. Einstein, a human being is part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feeling as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Again, this is panpsychism and also the fact that we are actually connected. So if you can prove that um, telepathy exists, uh, then that blows the Western scientific, um, the materialistic view that the brain produces consciousness. Because as I said before, all our thoughts are um, created from biochemical processes if the brain creates consciousness. So telepathy can't happen. Remote viewing, all these rest. Well, Dean Radin um, is a parapsychologist and researcher, um, and uh, he puts all this research together. He doesn't do all the research. He does some research. The Gansfeld tests, for example, there have been sufficient Gansfeld tests, which are a, um, a fancy way of a remote, a person sending remote pictures remotely to a viewer. OK, um, so all these things, he says, are the, uh, reach the six sigma level. That's get probability against chance of one, a billion to one against chance. So that the Gans Gansfeld tests something like 29 quintillion to one against. Now, I don't even know what that number is, but it's more than a billion. The, and the point, the point is the evidence is there. The scientific evidence for telepathy existing is there. Therefore, the Western materialistic view of consciousness is incorrect. Uh, remote viewing, that's another one. And incidentally, you might need like to know that um, Saddam Hussein's location was found um, by, a, it was a separate project from the military. They, they, it was the military that found him, but uh, uh, this separate project of remote, remote viewing viewers just wondered, oh, could they find him? 
and, and, and they described the exact location that the military uh, uh, found him. Uh, in Jimmy Carter's time, this downed plane was found in the Congo um, through um, remote viewing. Um, the Global Consciousness Project is well worth investigating. I shan't talk too much about it now, but basically um, Roger Nelson and Dean Radin um, uh, have a system where they put random number generators around the world just to see whether global um, um, awareness, global consciousness could affect them. So events like the death of Princess Di made these random number generators less random. The Twin Towers, um, the 2004 tsunami, things like that. And Roger Nelson's um, summary of, of the research saying that we've done this so many times, this shows that collective thought has an effect. Therefore, we have a responsibility to use it wisely. Now, acquired savant syndrome. Savants are amazing. I don't know whether you've seen Rain Man. That, that was based on a guy, chap called Kim Peake. Um, tiny example, some cocktail sticks were thrown on the floor, and he said, oh, 248. I mean, that might not have been the exact number, but the point was that he was able to just know how many cocktail sticks had been dropped on the floor. Um, so it, it's fascinating as well because... Are we all hidden genius, geniuses without knowing about it? Um, a chap was flown over London and, and just once and was able to draw um, the Houses of Parliament in absolute precise detail. Uh, now, normally, that, that's, that's beyond our abilities. Um, Rupert Sheldrake uh, and others think that memory is actually not stored in the brain. Um, this chap called Orlando Serrell, he was a young boy playing basketball, got hit on the side of the head very nastily by, by a ball um, and was unconscious for a while. Uh, and then when he recovered, when his headaches went, he had this ability to do um, calendrical calculations. That means, um, you know, give him a date, he'd tell you exactly uh, whatever day was in the future, exactly whether it was a Thursday or a Wednesday. Um, um, this... Antonio Securia was struck by lightning and now he can play the piano. You know, um, the, the point is, if the brain is a filter and you damage the filtering capacity of the brain, then you open up the potential for, for um, this wider expanded um, awareness. Uh, and that's, that's potentially what, what's happening here. Terminal lucidity. So when you've got people with things like meningitis, dementia, or brain damage, uh, towards the end of life, just before they die, now their brain has been damaged. But so to wake up, if you like, just before they die with, with complete lucidity, uh, to be able to hold a conversation, uh, recognising the people that they'd forgotten. Because um, it's so sad when with people with dementia just don't recognize their, their, their wife or their husband. Um, but just before death, on so many occasions, um, they will suddenly become totally lucid, have a perfectly good conversation for five minutes uh, and then, then pass on. And um, this particular case I've, I've got on the screen there, this called Haig in, in his research, reported the case of a young man dying of lung cancer that had spread to his brain. Now the brain scan showed the, the, the tumours had really damaged his brain. There was nothing left. But in the days before his death, 
Um, he'd lost all ability to speak, but according to her wife, his nurse and her wife, an hour before he died, he woke up and said goodbye um, and had a decent conversation with them. Deathbed visions. Now, <clears throat> this is something I really want to talk about because um, the dying process, and I think people really do need to understand the dying process is actually a lovely thing if you can let go. Um, they're, they're, they're moments of great joy because they're, they're dying person will have a reunion with somebody that's come to meet them, like a former wife or a parent um, or just a friend. And um, well, this is Steve Jobs, but if you if you if you don't know whether you recognize Steve Jobs, the head of former <laughs> head of Apple computers, that's an iPhone, obviously. Um, so according to his sister, his last words were, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. Uh, and, you know, this, this is the point. They suddenly see that something which is totally wonderful. Um, they are exciting reunions with, with a former loved one. Two major research studies um, show that 50% of people are likely to experience them. Now, what that actually means is, is that we're all going to experience these things. Okay, we might... You know, people with, on drugs or, um, or, or other instant deaths. You know, obviously, that's not going to happen. But, but essentially, it's what happens. And if you go into a, a, a hospice and ask them about it, then they'll say, yeah, it happens all the time. Um, so it, it's all, and again, it's also accompanied with a feeling of great peace. And that's often the case anyway. If you, I remember a, a friend of my mother's was just before she died. She said, um, I don't know whether I'm near death, but I just feel so peaceful and it's fine. <laughs> and, and so the question is not do they happen because they do happen. It's are they real or are they hallucinations? Well, in many cases, you'll get... Um, the knowledge of the death of a loved one that they didn't know had died because where, where say you've got a sibling um, and his, his, his brother or sister has died, um, it's the last thing you're going to tell a dying person that their brother or sister's died. Yet they found out about the death of their brother or sister because they're the one that's come, come to meet them, come to take them away. So um, death really isn't to be feared um, and it's important not to hold on to someone who's dying. The important thing to do is to talk about death before that situation occurs. You don't need to have any unresolved issues because it's far easier to communicate before they die than afterwards. Um, and you don't need to, to ask them to hang on simply because they feel you're gonna be sad if, if they go. Deathbed coincidences. Um, well, these, these are, where somebody will just know that a relative or a friend or someone they, they love has, has died. And clocks do stop. Um, animals do behave stra um, strangely. Peter Fennick uh, is a, a parapsychologist. And, and again, he, he uh, was a skeptic. He said, oh, this only happens in America. And he started doing his research. Uh, and He's he's a great um, what's the word for it emissary or whatever of near death experiences and all these things, um, and this is one of his examples from uh, his book. 
Um, so the, 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 the detail, he says, which is undeniable. So in this case, it's Elizabeth Daniel heard her ex-husband's voice one morning at 4.15 in the morning and in a way that it was so clear that he could have been in the room. Um, and he said, uh, we no longer need to talk. Um, well, she'd divorced him 28 years earlier, so really wasn't expecting to hear from him. Um, and, you know, because the being divorced, it took a couple of days to find out that um, actually that was the exact timing. But this is, this is a hallmark of these deathbed coincidences, that they happen at precisely the moment that somebody dies. Um, so these are after personal after-death communications. So uh, this doctor GP called Dewey Reeves found that 50% of the 66 widows that he interviewed had sensed the presence of uh, their dead spouse in one way or another, whether, whether they'd um, smelt their perfume or seen them um, um, or heard their voice. Um, and this chap, um, Reese, who was a researcher, found that 81% in his study and curiously, and not necessarily surprisingly, none of them wanted to tell their doctors. Now, my brother-in-law saw my late wife um, after she died. She physically appeared to him uh, and playing with her hair, saying, look, my hair's, my hair's fine. You know, I'm fine. Because obviously my brother-in-law was, was deeply upset. Uh, and uh, there was a great um, connection between the two. Um, I didn't have that experience. But the experience I had was absolutely fascinating because it was several months after my wife died. She was only 34. Um, and and um, that particular night, I wasn't even thinking about her. I'd been to a party and I was actually in a really good mood and looking, looking, I was happy for the first time. And as I was going to sleep, but I wasn't asleep, just like that, it really was as fast as that. I had this sudden communication from her and it wasn't the, the communication itself that was important it was to me it was the way it happened um my response went before i'd had time to edit it now normally we try and put things in in, in a way that you think is the best way to put something but no no it didn't have any time for that my brain sent not no <laughs> my consciousness sent it uh, and my brain would have wanted to have edited it and that's why it was um, so fascinating. Also, um, it wasn't an hallucination because it was based upon the current events and the reason why she made that communication was right. She, she was right. <laughs> so um, it's not an hallucination. Now, now, Bill and Judy Guggenheim studied after-death communications in 1998 with this after-death communication project. Um, oh, by the way, I put, instant, I put various QR codes. So if you've got a mobile phone and we're interested in a link, that, that's a quick way to grab the link. So these people interviewed over 2,000 people and collected uh, over 3,300 accounts. And they estimate that about 60 million Americans um, have had one of these after-death communication so that they're, they're very common lucid dreams <laughs> another reason or bit of evidence saying that the brain is a filter and, and that our consciousness is greater than what we normally um, imagine it is so james watson in a lucid dream discovered the um the structure the helical structure of dna samuel taylor taylor 
no, I can't say, Samuel Taylor Coleridge was given the entire poem of the Kubla Khan in a dream. Uh, he, when he woke up, he wrote it all down, but he'd forgotten the last verse. So it took him a, a little while, it was months or years, to remember the last verse. This guy called Mendeleev got the idea of the periodic, periodic table. He'd been working on it, it was a problem, but, but in his dream he saw the exact structure and everything made sense. Niels Bohr, the structure of the atom. See, where is this information coming from? If it's real, um, and clearly in these particular cases, it was real. Um, um, if, if our consciousness isn't greater, if there's information out there. Um, so I, anyway, it's, it's fascinating. And, and I had a, a lucid dream. It's quite personal, but so I'm not going to tell you all, all of it. But basically, had I not acted on the information that I got in a dream, um, then I wouldn't be here. Um, what was particularly fascinating, I, I find that I'm not easy for mediums to, to give messages to. And in this particular dream, uh, there was my mother and a friend of hers who was a medium in life. Now, to me, um, that was calling in the cavalry <laughs> because it was vital that, that I had this message. So there was my dear late mother doing what she could to make sure she uh, communicated with me. And, and fortunately, she did. Now, um, you've all seen mediums, um, so so it's probably not so relevant in this talk to, to go unduly in, into mediumship because you all know how, how it works. Um, there have been some scientific investigation uh, in, into um, the verification that the information they're getting has been obtained in a, um, in, in a, in a decent, in an honest way, that's the word I'm looking for. Uh, and Finally, um, the scientists are looking at the effects that, that it basically somebody goes to a medium to help with bereavement, it works. <laughs> and, and this is one of the things that in the last hypnotherapy convention that upset me slightly because there's this bereavement counselor talking about um, current thinking. And the current thinking is to talk about a continued connection, but she only meant in an abstract way. Um, but, but um, <laughs> and she also said, recognize that there are lots of people who say that they've had some sort of communication and uh, that these were actually just hallucinations. Well, I nearly at that point stood up and said, oh, no, I've had one. I know it's not an hallucination. Um, and, you know, what I do um, with um, when people come to me for help with, um, bereavement and, and usually I don't charge for this at all because I, uh, having experienced it, um, it it's something that's you know close to my heart if you like but but I get them in a deeply re relaxed state and then I'll ask I'll invite them to invite their loved one to come and talk to them and in that relaxed state you see you're getting the brain the filter a little bit out of the way uh, and the, the closeness that they feel most people feel that the communication they've had is genuine. But with mediumship, um, we do have to be careful because um, it's fantastic. I mean, uh, in, in my role, if you like, at, at the Extra Spiritualist Centre, I must have seen over 100 mediums in perhaps 250 different sessions. So I've seen quite a lot. And obviously, you know, uh, they're all genuine. 
Um, I've only ever once, and not in, not at Exeter, seen somebody which I believed was doing it fraudulently. So mostly, they're genuine, lovely people. They don't charge. Um, perhaps they charge for 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 um, travel, but it, you know, it's it's not a money spinner. That's the point. The motivation isn't for money. The motivation is to help people. Um, but nonetheless, I, I, I've seen some brilliant um, readings, uh, and I've seen cases where where I've been convinced they've just been reading their mind. Now, um, so it's a an awful responsibility because if you feed back to somebody what they're actually thinking about and what they're intending to do or they're doing and actually it's not very helpful but you encourage them that then then um you know that's not 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 helpful um on the other scale of it i've seen the accuracy of some mediums it's as if they've got a camera uh, following the person um, and on two occasions and only two occasions but these were wonderful I've seen uh, oh, witness people getting a hug um, they actually felt um, their loved one just surrounding them and giving them a, a hug and that was deeply moving so mediumship is such a wonderful gift to have um, obviously with the responsibility that it comes with but but um, scientists are now finding that the the information that they um they do give when they're giving information accurately their brain shows a different brain pattern and it's as if they're getting their brain out of the way there's less uh brain activity in some areas so it's all it's all fascinating stuff um Oh, this slide is is slightly out of uh, out of kilter so what we're looking at here um is past life memories um so helen wambach um was a skeptic so she was going to prove that these that the past life memories were, were just figments of the, of the imagination so she did a um a 10-year study of past life recalls under hypnosis now trying to um, trace information if somebody says oh I remember being uh, you know um, and a servant in a household in 1620 or something then how are you going to find the household you know it's really really time consuming um, so what Helen Wambach did was to look at basic data that could be proven so things like the clothing the utensils the money um, and uh, she, she uh, interviewed something like 1,200 students, 1,100 students, something like that. But, but at the end of her research, this is her um, um, comment, fantasy and genetic memory could not account for the patterns uh, that emerge. And she doesn't believe in reincarnation, she knows it. Now, Ian Stevenson, he was the he was the main man, if you like. He spent 40 years of his life researching um, um, childhood memories. He, he, he went for the cases where it was spontaneous um, memories. So he wouldn't go for he wouldn't use hypnosis because he didn't want uh, other scientists to say, well, look, that could have been um, a, a planted memory. So he, he tracked cases where people just would just know about a former family uh, and his case would be solved if he found the former personality and found after rigorous investigation that there was no other possible explanation no matter how improbable 
and he'd throw the case out if 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 it could be explained in in a normal way so out of 2600 cases 895 um were proven no other explanation now a couple of examples here um swanata mishra she um um her previous personality uh, was called uh, uh, forgotten it, forgotten it for the moment um uh, hang on Bia Patak, that's it. <laughs> now, she was able to describe her house, the, its location, the fact there was a, a lot, some lime kilns nearby. And um, when she was taken to her family to meet them, she was only about 11. She lowered her eyes and bowed in a manner that she would have done it, um, for the culture in front of her husband. Um, she was able to recognize something like 20 different people who who uh, this former personality uh, would have known. Um, she identified or told, told her former husband that he'd acquired 1400 rupees from her just before her death and was from a box in, in her bedroom. She commented on the changes um, to the house. Um, uh, one of her former sons pretended um, not to be this former son, but she insisted, no, you are, stop, stop, stop trying to mislead me. Um, the detail, they take on the personality of these people. Some children will just direct their parents to, to you know, they say, oh, this is our, our former house and go down here and it's late. They just know their way around. The Ravi Shankar, not a musician, um, his former personality um, was, was Munna. Um, now, he described the fact that uh, he, he, he was, um, his throat was slit, um, he was abducted by a barber and a washerman, he knew exactly where his, his body was buried, all he wanted was his toys back. <laughs> um, when he was uh, taken to meet his former father, um, um, his father was wearing a watch, he said that's the watch that you bought Munna in Bombay, he even knew that uh, uh, he'd eaten figs guavas sorry on the morning of, of of the abduction and only the family would have known that from his evidence the barber and the washerman were arrested but as there was there wasn't sufficient evidence because it was only Ravi Shankar's word for it they unfortunately they were they were released um but out of all these cases um um Stevenson found that 35 percent of the verified cases um, had some sort of birthmark relating to their form of the method of death. So this isn't Ravi Shankar, but you can see this chap has got um, what looks like a, um, either a rope mark or a, 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 a slit across his throat. Um, and on the other picture, um, one, one you've got the photo of the, the, the chap with his birthmarks, and then below you've got the coroner's sketch of the the shotgun wounds um uh, relating to to the, his former personality's murder now if you've got physical evidence 35 percent of the time that's statistically so unlikely to happen by chance um um you know it's <laughs> but as stevenson says what evidence if you had would, would make you believe in reincarnation now um James Leininger, his case was investigated by a chap called Jim Tucker, who took over from, from Ian Stevenson. 
two, he would have a nightmares. He'd be he'd wake up kicking in his bed, and they, the nightmares would get progressively worse. Uh, it turned out, um, as they they asked him further, that he said um, he he um, used to fly Corsair aircraft, and that's a Corsair, by the way, in the, the picture of the Corsair. Um, and he said they would get flat tires, um, and he, he said he was shot down. Um, the ship he was on was the Natoma. It turned out to be the Natoma Bay. Um, and um, one curious thing at four, he, he, um, he, they were in a toy shop and, and he picked up this toy and, and his mother said, oh, look, it's got a big bomb underneath. He said, no, I mean, that's a, a drop tank. <laughs> um, the amount of detail in this particular case is staggering. So there's another QR code there for you and, and the link as well. But he even recognised a former uh, colleague, uh, Bob Greenwell, um, by his voice. Um, and they really investigated this. They, they found the exact uh, spot. They found people, um, eyewitnesses, uh, who, who said, yes, they saw this former personality. Um, the, the plane hit on the engine and burst into flames, just as James Leininger had said. Now, um, you couldn't get this detail from um, from any other other source because he was four <laughs> or two when he started having these these nightmares. Anyway, so so that they're they're worth investigating. Um, Brian Weiss um, and the Bloxham case. Well, the Bloxham came first. That was Arnold Bloxham. He was interviewed. He was a hypnotherapist and he did past life regression and. Um, uh, I think Jeffrey Iverson did a BBC documentary on him um, where um, that, that that showed all these cases that he'd done and then the evidence um, which could be found to be accurate from, from those um, tapes. Now, Brian Weiss is more recent. He, um, again, was a sceptic. He's an American psychologist. Um, and this lady came to him who'd been in psychotherapy for years with absolutely no benefits at all so he thought he'd regress her uh, and uh, he was a bit surprised when she started talking about his life in Egypt um, well every single time that they'd come through some trauma usually associated with the death of a particular former personality then this thing would would just go away so in three months this lady that in his book um, he called um, Catherine um, that's, that's many lives, many masters is the name of his book. Um, so she was, she was fixed. Now, curiously, the very first time I regressed somebody, um, she came for a snake phobia and she's very happy for me to, to talk about it. I've asked her permission. Um, she, um, then with, with, a, with a phobia, you, you, you just generally do desensitization. So you put someone you, in their imagination, you present them with the issue and you just go over it and over it again or look at the good things, whatever. You get, people get used to it uh, and, and the phobia goes, but that didn't work. <laughs> so I regressed, I said, we'll just go back to the um, cause of this. Uh, and um, she described, first of all, being a little black boy asked to get water from a river with a bucket um, and there were snakes on the rocks and he was frightened. Now, he didn't get bitten. Um, and and oh, I said, oh, and curiously, what year is this? And she said something like 1894. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And then in another one, slightly later, it was 19, I can't remember now, 
she described being a young girl and she was bitten by a, by a snake. Now, the point was, I didn't do anything clever. I just brought out these, or she brought out these memories. Um, and there was no planting of ideas. I so said, describe where you are. No leading questions. But the point was, just these memories surfacing got rid of the phobia. Um, and for fun later, um, I took her to the extra um, reptile shop, which was there at the time. And we went in and there was a snake or lots of snakes in there. We said, well, that one's quite cute. <laughs> so the point is, if phobias um, aren't caused by a past life regression, then what else is causing them? Um, why did it work if it wasn't real? Now, this is what I really want to talk about. <laughs> Because what we have here is a phenomenon that's been written about um, since 400 BC. Plato was the first one. It has profound and beneficial um, changes on people, not only the people that have them, but vicariously through the people who, who investigate them and even people who read about them. So I do strongly recommend you reading these things because they actually have an effect in you. They, they, you have this sense of comfort that comes from them. And, and there's this comment, um, I've forgotten who, this, who, the, who made this comment, but it was simply the most amazing, beautiful thing I have ever, ever experienced. Now, imagine someone's bereaved. Then, then if they get the idea um, that actually it's not that bad, um, and not only that bad, it's the most amazing thing that they've ever experienced. OK, it's not it's not going to answer the grief, but it's going to help because they know that the, love, that the loved one is OK. Now, these near-death experiences are the same across cultures. Um, it's not what your what your preconceptions of it will be. It'll be as it'll be. Um, okay, there's, there's some cultural um interpretation so if they see a, a being of light it might they might describe it according to their culture so Allah um, Buddha Christ um, or just a being of light um, blind people have them and perhaps the most fascinating thing is that the, the near-death experiences of young children who couldn't possibly have heard about them by any other means um, too young to read about them they say the same things so it was Raymond Moody in 1975 who triggered the, the massive amount of interest in these. He wrote a book called Life After Life. After Life and he interviewed about well, nearly 150 people um, and um, found there were patterns. So ineffability, the inability to, to describe it, a feeling of peace, awareness of being dead, out-of-body experience, going through a tunnel. Um, meeting a being of light, a panoramic life review, um, a border that they, if they, they knew that they, they, if they crossed the border, they couldn't come back, um, and and that that's that's very common. And his research triggered a whole load of things. So the Bruce Grayson um, um, followed in, in suit, um, as did. Um, John Adet, Mike Michael Sabon, um, Kenneth Ring. He's worth looking up on YouTube. And they all found the same thing. Now, Jeffrey Long, uh, he's done done the world a lot of good, bless him. He he produced this web page, uh, the NDERF, that's a Near Death Experience Research Foundation, um, where 
he allowed people to upload their own NDEs, and we'll look at one in, in a moment. Um, but from the, they got about four, four and a half thousand um, uh, entries there now. So um, he's analyzing, because scientists don't like, generally speaking, they don't like um, um, retrospective studies. So where someone's had one, had it, had an experience 10 years ago or more, um, you know, they can't examine the medical records. So they think, oh, well, it, you know, you, you just can't comment on it. But um, he says, well, you can, um, because um, there are patterns within these things, things I've already mentioned, like the children having the same uh, experience of adults. And, and you know, 90% of them, for example, involve um, a deceased loved one. Now, if they were hallucinations, then um, you'd get all sorts of weird things, wouldn't you? Um, you might get the milkman. Um, you might even expect the, the people to see the ambulance men. You know, that would be logical. But hallucinations are frightening experiences. And, and also, hallucinations require brain activity. Well, what's happened with a cardiac arrest, for example, within seconds, the brain flatlines. There is no brain activity. So how can you have an hallucination without any brain activity? Might get onto a bit more of that later. Penny Sartori uh, did a PhD um, in, in NDEs. And her story is worth looking at. She's written a book, well, various books. One is The Wisdom of Near-Death Experiences. She um, was first inspired to, to write a book by her experience as a nurse with a dying patient who just wanted to be allowed to die peacefully. Um, and, and there was a moment when their eyes met and he was just saying, just leave me. Um, and anyway, this, this inspired her to do, um, to look into near-death experiences. And she spent eight years doing it. Um, more on her later. Pim Van Lommel um, wanted to address the, um, the idea of um, progressive studies. So that's a study where you can actually um, examine the medical records. You can interview um, the, the, the people who've had the near-death experiences immediately after they've had them. So more about that later. Um, and, uh, carry on. Um, oh, I've gone, gone the wrong way. Going backwards. So there's the website for the NDERF. Uh, and there's also the International Association of Near-Death Studies. So that's another, another um, page to look at and it's quite interesting that, that um, when I don't know how many of you have seen the Netflix um, series surviving death but uh, if you can just read that in, in just one week um, after the release uh, it was number three in the top 10 most viewed um, program um, yeah programs so Pim Van Lommel he, he, he's brilliant uh, and um, not only did he analyze these something like 380 people who'd had these near-death experiences, being a scientist, he wanted to check you know, what really was happening. Um, so he, he ruled out any medical reason. Um, he looked into all sorts of the, the backgrounds, whether it was psychological problems that caused it or anything like that. None of that. There was no pattern. There was no reason why somebody should have in the death experience over over another person. Um, he then um, interviewed people two and eight years after. Um, and curiously, 
eight years afterwards, they still used this more or less exactly the same wording. The memories of them had not faded at all. And again, this business of memory, just imagine this, somebody has flatlined, their heart stopped beating, yet they have these experiences where memory is generated while their brain is not working. There can be no scientific explanation for that other than what it appears to be on the face value. It can't be the last gasp of a dying brain. What does that mean? It's meaningless. Sampagno, um, uh, again, did, a, did some, a progressive study. He had hoped to uh, capture, well, he put images um, you rigged various operating theatres with um, images so that if somebody was out of their body, they might be able to see them. This, in, this was a, a multinational thing. There were, there were Austria, the state, Southampton, um, lots of different places. Um, and this is actually a bit of a bit worrying, really. Out of 2060 cardiac arrests, they only had 330 survivors, so don't have a cardiac arrest. Uh, and 101 were interviewed. Well, these things that, he, that he's reported, um, again, fit in with um, not only Raymond Moody's um, uh, um, categories, but also what people have been talking about um, since the people started writing about them. Um, so 13% reported senses more vivid than normal. 13% reported feeling separate from their body. Eight encountered a mystical being. Seven came to a border, uh, a point of no return. And 2%, that's just two, um, had visual awareness. Now, unfortunately, one um, wasn't in a state that they could interview. And, and that means that only one was able to be interviewed about what he saw. But everything he described from the, the use of the defibrillator to a particular person that came in um, was exactly as the medical records have um, you know, reported. So, so it was accurate. So how can you explain um, visual awareness out of your body if, you're, if you don't have a soul? <laughs> if the, you can, the brain can't be producing it because the brain is nowhere near it. So the skeptics explanations are hypoxia. That's that's lack of oxygen. Well, um, air, um, aircraft pilots, um, particularly in the RAF and things, um, often get um, lack of uh, oxygen when they're going doing loop loops and things like that. But um, those records have been um, examined and there's no pattern there. Um, and besides which, um, hypoxia might cause you to go unconscious, um, but Remember, these people have flatlined. Their brain is unconscious. Um, another one is REM intrusion. Well, that's that's the idea that um, dreams uh, might be um, popping in, in, into it. So uh, there is DMT in, in your pineal gland, uh, and that is thought to um, in, uh, be responsible for producing um, you know, dream images. Um, but, but nonetheless, you've got to remember that these people are basically dead. <laughs> so you're not going to get a dream happening with um, showing you exactly what's going on in the operating theatre. So, so but the point is, sceptics don't actually look at the data because they find it uncomfortable. They, they don't want to um, um, find out that this is how it is. Why, I, I can't work out. Um, but... but they ignore uncomfortable data. Um, 
reconstruction is another another um, line of argument. So, oh, it's, it's they've remembered, they picked it up from well, this nurse said that, that nurse said that. So this is what must have happened, and then they think it's a. I mean, you can get fake memories. It's possible to to um, um, believe or remember something that didn't quite happen, but not in the, not to the detail that, that these these happen. Fraud. Well, yes, it, yes, it could be fraud, but. Um, what's the motivation and would all these people be doing fraud I, I doubt it and hallucinations again you know uh, hallucinations as I said are frightening experiences and there's no pattern to them um, temporal lobe epilepsy has been dismissed Pimban Lommel is, is the chap that you, you want to read if you want to um, understand how all the skeptics um, alternative suggestions have um, have been dismissed. Essentially, they ignore the data. Now, I want to read you this because this this lady, um, uh, Rachel, um, um, I've actually been managed to communicate with her since re reading this, um, and I'm hoping to have a, a session where I'd interview her um, because she described herself as being quite a spiteful person, a uh, selfish person before her NDE. And now she is just so full of spiritual knowledge. It's just wonderful. So she, she uh, was about to deliver, or was in the process of delivering a baby, uh, and it went wrong. And so she says, I briefly hovered over my newborn baby, hoped she'd remember me, then I was traveling. It felt like I was shooting through a tunnel, but I couldn't see any sides to it. It was dark, but illuminated. I was not alone. I could sense a presence with me. I was tumbling forward, upward at an unfathomable speed. It felt like wind all throughout me, inside of me. I likened it at that age to being on a roller coaster, that rushing feeling. It was wonderful. I felt so light, so free. Simultaneously, I experienced this fully and watched myself experience this with clear vision from a little distance. I can still see myself tumbling if I concentrate on the memory, as if I were staring at a giant screen that filled the whole of every which way I turned. The movie was my life from birth to death, every minute of it, every event I had ever experienced. I watched it and relived it. It was at this point I realised that time did no longer appear to me as it had in my body. It was as if I were projected into a moment or dragged through time backwards before forwards to re-feel. I witnessed at this point the sexual abuse I had experienced and suppressed as a young child, as well as out-of-body experiences I had at this time and at night when I was lying in my bed. I could see myself flying out of my body and I remembered. I watched my own poor mistakes and learnt from every reliving. I watched myself as a child bitten by a guinea pig and in shock half launch it onto the sofa. I felt shame at this time because I felt the fear of the guinea pig. No one condemned me. I was only asked, what had I learnt? I was comforted at this time, consoled and reassured. I had learnt so much how big an impact my seemingly small actions had on a large scale. How my choices and behaviour rippled through the lives of countless others. How the love I showed spread like wildfire. How the way I mistreated others deeply hurt and affected them. And also how that pain, fear and confusion would then impact the lives of others too. 
From the time I spent in this reliving, I developed a deep gratitude for many things. The experience of life for one, the people and the hearts that had touched my soul in beautiful ways and the fragility of being human. Now, that's so profound. How could that be invented, fraudulent, a hallucination, the last gasp of a dying brain? You know, and if you read these near-death experiences, most of them are as powerful as that. So the common things reported by Indians is, and this is really comforting, you are loved unconditionally. Time, as you saw in that last, heard in that last thing, doesn't exist as we know it. We are beings of light and part of a single whole. Maybe that's panpsychism. The purpose of life is to learn to love unconditionally and to gain experiences. Can you learn to love as unconditionally as you are loved? Um, Rupert Sheldrake, um, uh, a researcher in this area as well, <coughs> just coincident, not coincidentally, but just posed this question, was John the Baptist actually a drowner? Did he induce these near-death experiences so that people could be enlightened? Um, it's just a thought. <laughs> so the life review is, is um, the crucial thing. The people who have life reviews in near-death experiences are deeply affected, profoundly and beneficially. Um, and it's really worth reading the life reviews um kenneth ring there's a there's a youtube video with kenneth ring um explaining a life review a friend of his um was driving a truck and um nearly ran over somebody who stupidly st stood in front of him well he was so angry at, at, at nearly hurting this chap that bizarrely he got out of his truck and he beat this chap up <clears throat> and a few years later when he had his own near-death experience he relived this moment. He felt his own teeth crack. He felt every punch as, it, as he delivered it and as it was delivered. So from, from the victim's point of view. And that's very moving. So that's a, that's a YouTube video worth looking at. But basically the, the life review is non-judgmental. It's, it's cause and effect, but it's what did you learn? Um, they've shown the consequences of their thoughts and actions. They feel the effects as if the other person very fast yet there's time to contemplate even on on certain thoughts time is a is a is a funny thing um <laughs> i can't get my head around time not being linear but anyway but this feeling of being loved unconditionally now the things that astound the skeptics <clears throat> are the ones the vertical ndes the things that prove or that have been seen by somebody when when there's no possible way that they could have seen these things so maria's shoe um maria had this nde and, and reported she, was, she saw a worn out tennis shoe particularly the, the toe was worn uh, kimberly clark sharp her social worker went to investigate and she found this shoe uh and from the window um it, it was on a window ledge you, you couldn't possibly she said you couldn't possibly have seen the detail on that shoe as Maria described, unless you were hovering outside the window. Um, Pim van Lommel's research um, showed this one person, this was great because he came into the hospital in a coma. Um, so couldn't have seen anything to do with it with the hospital whatsoever. Um, 
then in the operating theatre, his dentures were removed and put in uh, a, a bottom shelf of a, a bottom drawer of a trolley. And um, after the operation, they didn't return uh, his dentures, but he's, he identified it and asked, oh, she knows where my dentures are. And, um, you know, it described the whole thing. So, so that surprised them um, totally. Pam Reynolds is a very interesting case and um, totally confounds the sceptics because she had a particular um, brain um, aneurysm that needed to be removed. Uh, and it was a pioneering operation. Um, she had to be, um, her, her blood had to be drained. Her body had to be chilled to 25 degrees lower than normal. Um, and she was wheeled into the operating theater. They taped over her eyes. Um, it's already under, under anesthetic by then. Um, they put uh, speakers in her ears to, to emit a hundred decibel clicks so that they could pick those up on a brain scanner just to really make sure that um, she was out of it. Um, yet uh, midway um, through, she described this bone um, saw, um, the, the noise it made, she described it in detail. She described uh, um, a doctor, another doctor um, saying um, that her arteries or veins are too, too small and the, the response being, oh, try the other leg. She was a bit surprised why they were um, messing around with her groin when, when this was um, a brain uh, operation. But of course, they had to put tubes in, um, through, you know, that, in that, that way. Um, she was also surprised by the number of people in, in the operating theatre because apparently there was something like 20. Um, and in, in the recovery room, this is again while she's still uh, under anaesthetic because the junior doctors were then left to, to do this stitching up. Um, um, they were playing Hotel California. Um, you, you can't check out, uh, or you can, but you can, you can check out, but you can never leave. And she told the surgeon that this, she thought this was a bit tasteless. Charbonnier, <laughs> um, um, that's a French doctor, uh, reported a case where a patient saw an amputation happen in a different operating theatre, um, where, where the, the amputated limb was put in a yellow bag. Uh, I've already told about Sampani's uh, research. Um, many NDEs themselves uh, do their own investigation. Um, independently, Michael Sabom and Penny Sartori did a little bit of research on the, the uh, survivors of cardiac arrests and those who had NDEs in their cardiac arrest, um, unsurprisingly really, uh, could say exactly what happened, whereas the others made mistakes. Um, Lloyd Rudy, that's another, uh, that's just quite almost comical, if, if one of these things can be comical. Um, um, he, um, um, there the was, it was a routine operation that went wrong. This chap was was basically dead for 18 minutes. Um, um, but this chap described the, the, the panic in getting the anaesthetist back and the fact that the post-it notes were on a, on a uh, um, computer monitor. Well, in terms of timing, he couldn't possibly have seen the post-it notes because the post-it notes were messages for Lloyd Rudy while he was in the operating theatre, while he couldn't be reached. So that they happened after the start of the operation. So if people can see things that actually happen, their spirit is not in their body. Consciousness is not a product of the brain. We are spiritual beings. 
And the wonderful thing about uh, NDEs, they have amazing effects. People lose the fear of death. They have an increased belief in the um, creator. They're more spiritual, more psychic, more compassionate. They do more for charity. They live life more fully and they can't wear watches. Well, it, well something like 40 percent, um, they can wear watches, but the watches don't work. Um, um, probably no mediums who, who muck up computer equipment. But uh, anyway, so um, here, here's a whole list of, of interesting um, um, uh, cases of worth near-death experiences. Roger Benimore came back with a um, uh, an in-depth knowledge of quantum physics, who um, she, she took it to a local uh, university. The professor didn't know about some of the stuff she was talking about, and it was only when later research was published that it was proved that she was right. Um, Anita Morjani, that's a very popular, very well-known near-death experience. But what's fascinating in that one is, is that she had Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, now, that's actually the same disease that my wife died of. Um, uh, and it's something that doesn't go away. Um, if you have it the second time, uh, the, the chemotherapy sorts it out the first time, but the second time, it really is really difficult to get rid of. Um, well, Anita Morgani didn't go for chem chemotherapy. Um, I think she was given a tiny bit at, at, at the end. But, but essentially, she passed over. She um, met her um, father who said, it's not your time yet. And they had this discussion um, and she saw the benefits of coming back. Um, incidentally, in this process, she witnessed exactly the operation. Her lungs were drained. This is a common thing because um, the, the lungs f fill up with fluid uh, or the cavity does. So, so, so they have their lungs drained. So she was wheeled in in a coma. Um, this doctor called, I think, Dr. Chang um, um, did this operation to her. When she woke up the next morning, she said, oh, hello, Dr. Chang, how are you? And he was gobsmacked that, that she knew his name. Well, you were the doctor that did that procedure on me <laughs> the previous night. He, she also, uh, her husband was surprised and he said, well, he's the one that told you I had only hours to live. And he said, well, that's in a different room, 40 yards down the corridor. But the fascinating thing about Anita Morgani is that within two weeks, her Hodgkin's lymphoma had gone. They couldn't find it. They couldn't find a single trace of it. Now that's staggering. And it's and it's really encouraging over the power of the mind because the power of the mind can fix that. Obviously, that was a that was a rather sort of dramatic way of, of telling your body to heal. But she was on a mission now uh, and focusing on what she wanted to do seemed to heal her. And, and that's that for me is, is fascinating. Um, Sean Mann, Madden's friend of mine, uh, and he had the most amazing near-death experience. You, you can find that online. Carl Jung brought back information from his that um, helped him with his his um, his psychotherapy. Uh, now, um, there's a, a QR code there and a link to the firefighters because, you know, again, one of, one of the skeptics things is, well, how can you corroborate these things well there was a group of firefighters that had um, a near-death experience they were overcome by smoke they all saw uh, each other having their near-death experiences um, one of them who'd got a bit of a gammy um, foot um, one of them commented hey your foot's all right <laughs> 
fortunately they, they all recovered but that's worth worth uh, investigating because it was a group experience um and some some of these near-death experiences are shared i know a medium who who um his mother passed over and he went with her through this tunnel obviously he wasn't allowed to continue but he, you know that was a, a shared experience and there are, there are various shared experiences so back to, to penny sartori who did eight years research in into the phd into near-death experiences and as she says the crucial point i want to make is that ndes undoubtedly occur and have very real life-changing effects on those who have them further further to that the wisdom gained during the nde can be life enhancing and have hugely positive effects on those who have not experienced an nde all we have to do is take notice and hear what these people have to say name says the biggest thing i've learned since undertaking my research is not about death but about life with our current technology and consumerist materialist way of life we've forgotten the most important thing how to live and that <clears throat> that's reflected by various others thomas fleischman says that he developed the same personality changes as those who'd had ndes uh, merely through his medical experience with those who had and um kenneth ring said says they're like a benign virus um you just get hooked in into them if you like and pin van lommel um they transformed his views on life and death he says that his patients are his greatest teachers so why isn't all this evidence i've been giving you so far recognized by mainstream science um the scientific method isn't terribly helpful because it won't allow you to um, hypothesize on anything that you can't measure. So if you're talking about somebody hearing voices, you can't have a hypothesis saying that's a spirit that's talking to them because they can't measure the spirit. Therefore, how are you going to get to the truth if you can't um, actually um, create a hypothesis based on it? But fundamentally, it's ignorance of the data uh, and scientific dogma. Now, you have to understand that science research is um, dictated by the people at the top okay and traditionally the people at the top certainly in america um, have been uh, from an atheist background so this is the last thing they'd want to investigate but this next quote says it all <clears throat> so bethany butzer if as a scientist or layperson you dare suggest that there might be other factors beyond matter space and time that are involved in our physical reality for example by studying topics such as consciousness psychic phenomena or mystical experiences you run the risk of being metaphorically burned at the stake by having your research rejected your reputation tarnished tarnished and perhaps even losing your job and of course research scientists need an income and comes from research so that they've got to get funded so so uh, this is this is the problem it's um dogma <clears throat> little quote from nicholas tesma nicholas nikola tesla the day science begins to study the non-physical phenomena it will make more progress in one decade than in all the previous centuries of its existence but there is hope because actually since starting to write and study for this talk just in the last few years things have changed dramatically so the top graph um there's a there's a um, um an online database called pubmed so that stores an awful lot of research not at all but but an awful lot so the first graph at the top uh, right there is i just did a quick search for with near-death experience in the title not a 
fantastic scientific method but nonetheless you can see there's a bit of ex exponential growth there so so that in 2018 29 or 2020 there are about 20 bits of research nothing fantastic but it's an upward shift um now now the next graph is remote viewing and you can see that also is exponential um the bottom graph is by far the most interesting and gives loads of hope because I, I, I searched for spirituality in the title of research. So you can see it's exponential. And in 2020, over 2,000 published uh, research articles um, were, were entered into the database, 2,000. Um, and all of a sudden, uh, consciousness, studying consciousness is now less taboo. Um, um, I think it was possibly triggered by this paper that was, it was signed by in 2016 by 100 scientists calling for less restriction on what they research. Because actually, most of the scientists, uh, you know, they, 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 they believe in a continued existence. They, they believe that they are um, more than a biological robot. And uh, I was very excited to see this article on panpsychism in Scientific American published in 2020. So there's, there's, there's hope. <laughs> and this is why Christ, uh, NDEs are so powerful. Christine Stewart, who had one, my belief is that if everyone had an NDE, there would never be another war. No one would starve or be the victim of violence and greed would become a thing of the past. Um, yeah, this idea of panpsychism, Sean Madden in his NDE, um, basically saying saying that we are all connected there is only one being now um <clears throat> i thought the title of this this talk had changed by by, by lawrence so i've added a, a little bit because the journey of the soul now there's a book now curiously this book suddenly appeared on um my sideboard uh oh this is 40 years ago um it's written in 1903. Now, don't be put off by by the word. Doesn't the word occultism in there? It just means hidden, hidden from normal um, view. And in 1903, it was accepted as a. Uh, it wasn't linked to any any voodoo or whatever. And it's nothing to do with this. It's a really, really gentle book. So, if you're interested in the journey of the soul, if you like, I strongly recommend you you downloading this free PDF. Okay. Um, so they're saying the talking about the nature of thoughts. And what I love about this book is bearing, bearing in mind it was written in 1903, all this research that I've been reading about, it goes along with it all. Um, okay, some of the things um, like the afterlife, they can't possibly research, they can't possibly get results for that. But when it talks about telepathy being real and thoughts, it all fits. So in this book, it says, um, thoughts are like like must like a like a perfume if you like once they're emitted they linger okay so thoughts are real things so when you've got a strong thinker or lots of people thinking the same thoughts then um um it, it gets embedded in in objects um I mean, you've probably been to development classes where, where somebody's brought an object or a medium will ask you for a ring or something um the, the the memory of the thought gets embedded in in the object and they also warn to send no uh, send forth no strong thoughts or desires 
unless it meets with your higher self okay so be careful what you wish for be careful for sending strong thoughts thoughts are real and that collective thought um, works um and again he's talking about with life cause and effect we're not punished for our sins for our errors if you like by them but not because of them um so we you know it's like a child who burns his hand on, on a stove um the child isn't being punished by the stove he just learns oh, not not to do that again um and it also talks about equality of religions if you like it, it's all looking for the divine wrapped up in different ways doesn't matter which which particular region, religion we go for um, now if you're wondering about what happens afterwards well um, I've read various things that say the same thing so Victor Borges book um, life in the world unseen um, this yogi philosophy book um, books by doubting I don't know whether you've, you've read any of those but they all talk about planes of existence so you go into a level of your understanding now this isn't scientific this is just what various people have, have written but it seems to be sensible um, and there's never any going back um, and there's almost no point in describing or trying to convey to us what the higher levels are like because we wouldn't understand um, and this business, I mean, lots of people, including me, think, well, I don't want to come back here again. Uh, uh, well, you can be comforted to a point because reincarnation is a matter of choice. If, if we fail a lesson, we might have to come back. But um, if we don't, then it might be that after a while we decide that for our own spiritual development, we have to come back and learn a, a, particular, uh, a particular thing. Now, curiously, I, I spoke to somebody whose who's, um, child um, remembered past life or remembered the in-between life in that he remembered in particular this discussion he had with being sent down. Now, he knew he was going to be sexually abused and he didn't want to come back. And the question was, well, if you don't learn this, then how are you going to help other people? Um, so he reluctantly um, came down um but but it's with consent always with consent so i strongly recommend you you having a look at that book um the pdf because it's 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 fascinating and it's gentle it really is you know um um you you came across your qualities honestly this is how you are no judgment um and, and well it's wonderful now I'm not going to talk for another half an hour on serendipitous coincidences, but I could. Um, so many serendipitous um, coincidences have happened to me. And I bet this is something that resonates with all of you. Have you ever been in a situation where you didn't know how you're going to get out of it or what, where, what, where, what the solution was? Well, we are being looked after. Um, I think the funniest one I've got, and not the most profound at all, but I, I um, took down some lilac trees at uh, my house here because um, the neighbouring school had put up a fence and didn't need the visual block and they were old and, and uh, passed it and one had been blown over anyway. Um, then I took a day off to um, um, dig out the stumps. Well, I had an office job at the time. After two hours digging, um, 
I was a physical wreck. I, I couldn't lift the spade anymore. So I went back to work on my computer. But just before I did, I let out this mental yelp to my late mother saying, look, I need your help. But how can you help? This is so physical. And I was, I was in a, it was, it was just a joke, you know. Ten minutes later, no kidding, there was a knock at the door. Landscape gardener, do you need any heavy work doing? <laughs> the moral of the story is that we are being looked after. Uh, so just ask for help and just be aware of of when it when you get the response. Now, uh, Emma Harding's Britain. Now, she's well worth um, invest or reading about. Um, you probably heard about the the um, National Spirits of Unions, their seven principles. Well, her mediumship went to formulate those, although it went through, if you like, a committee to form these things. And um, I think they missed out a couple of vital things. So the main thing is to search for the truth in every department of being. Continue to search for the truth all your life. Never cease to test whether you what you believe is true is true. And then when you found the natural laws, try and understand them and live by them. It's like a light bulb moment, some of these things, this, this idea of, of never being unkind to anybody, never telling somebody a truth that might upset them unless it's absolutely necessary. And I love this one, manifest love above and beyond all, seeking to cultivate in our families, kindred, friends, and amongst all mankind generally, the feeling of that true and tender love which can think, speak, and act no wrong to any living creature remembering always that where love is all the other principles of right are fulfilled there's a couple of links there um, if you go to the extra spiritist center um, website you'll, you'll find them there and this whole thing is in our language i've seen the light the light at the end of the tunnel i jumped out of my skin um oh before i finish i'll tell you about tony woody's um near-death experience he um nothing wrong with him um he was on a, an american plane that was in trouble and um, the pilot got it wrong when they landed. Uh, they moved the flaps the wrong way or something, I don't know, but essentially he ended up landing on two different runways in the same landing and he said he never wants to do that again. <laughs> um, and uh, he had this near-death experience. He, 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 he described seeing a Coca-Cola can sort of flying through the air because the, the, the fireman um, wasn't expecting the plane to veer across the runway like that and he was jumping out of the way to save his life. Anyway, he had he's met this being of light and the, the quantity of love that he felt, he described as imagining all the love from all the mothers who have ever lived coming at you all at once doesn't come close. And finally, Namaste. I don't know whether you know the word. Um, the Hindu meaning of it anyway is, is the divine in me bows to the divine in you. And a medium friend I was talking to last night um, said whenever she um, has a disagreement with somebody, um, she thinks it's the divine in that person. Basically, she is talking to to God. So, so if you if you think of it like that, if you're talking to somebody who has the divine in them, who's also on a spiritual path, 
how can you be cross with them even though there's a disagreement so i think that's wonderful but it's the end of my talk namaste what can i say jamie <clears throat> you have spoken for an hour and 20 minutes and oh, we have, don't apologize the uh everybody has absolutely loved it uh very interesting comments coming in on the side personally i want to thank you for tonight for putting together all that wonderful um powerpoint presentation for us all as well it's been really easy to follow and really really thought-provoking uh just going by the, some of the comments there was a few people commented saying they had experienced ndes themselves and because i like playing with figures i worked out seven and a half percent of the people watching tonight have had nd that's quite a big percent I'd love, to, I'd, love to hear, I'd love to hear from them if they want to if they want to share it with me i'd love to hear from them so so do ask them to contact me Thank you. Uh, and I've also been posting, as you've mentioned, different sites like the uh, Near Death Experience Research Foundation. I've been posting links to those for people to follow up themselves. So absolutely brilliant. We do have a few questions coming in. Uh, now, I've got to go quite the way back for one. Uh, so bear with me. Talk amongst yourselves. There we go. Stacey Spark. So she's asking, could you, uh, if you could, oh, I'll try that in English. Could you put her under hypnosis to take her back to her time of her NDE when I met loved ones? Well, there's never any guarantee, but uh, in hypnosis, you tend to remember things that you didn't before. Um, it's a state of focused attention. So it's, it's quite possible. Um, as I say, when I regress or when I try and help people who are bereaved, they genuinely feel that the communication they've had is real. So, so it's very likely, but but I can't guarantee it. Wonderful. Uh, where else were we? The lovely Sue, Sue Townsend. Oh, Sue. <laughs> yeah, I always rely on Sue for some really good, good questions. So this was raised at that time when you said you struggle with something outside of linear time. Yeah, um, that, that, this is um, Michael Bohm. Um, Michael Bohm, I think it's Michael Bohm. Um, his um, um, thought that, that, that it is actually a holographic universe um, and that memory. And they, that, I don't like mentioning this experiment with rats because how some of these scientists can do some, some of these things. But basically, they're trying to identify where in the brain um, um, memory is. And, and so they taught these rats how to do a, get through a maze. And I won't describe what they did to the rats, but ba basically there was no part of the brain that was responsible. So, that, so they felt, uh, um, Michael Talbot has, has, done, has written a book called The Holographic Universe. That's well worth a read. I've got Bohm's name wrong it's not michael bohm it's but bohm it is not name and there's another um scientist who independently came up with this idea of a holographic um universe so so yeah it, it's it's an, an interesting idea um personally i think it's another way of saying talking about panpsychism the akashic records uh universal mind or whatever it's basically all this information is available to 
all of us if we can only get the filter that's our brain out of the way. Indeed, indeed. Um, one of the stumbling blocks I find on my spiritual pathway sometimes is there is a thought or an image or an idea that I cannot put into words because it doesn't make sense or it can detract from the beauty or the, the, the sheer upliftment because words fail it. Simple as that. But, uh, just realized I haven't quite answered part of Sue's thing. Um, this business about time. Yes, many, many, many things you read will, will talk about the past, the present and the future all happening in parallel. Now, uh, I can't get my head around that. It's an idea. Uh, and but as I say, I can't, I can't conceive that how that works. But but it is it's definitely out there as an idea. Time doesn't seem to be what we think it is. Now that's really interesting because earlier on when I was getting ready, uh, I love music. I love all types of music. And there was a couple of clips came up on YouTube of the old days out in Ibiza. Uh, places like that, which brought back many happy memories. <laughs> and I did wonder, I did think, oh, you know, when I'm back home, can I go back and to relive that? And somebody went, yes, you can. I went, oh, okay, I'm looking forward to that then. Whey, I don't need a ticket. Happy days. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Jeanette Sand as a question yeah interesting one because on what yes i, I didn't talk about uh, negative in in ndes even though i had them on my slide uh, basically people don't want to talk about ndes unless they're prompted because for, for various reasons one they find it really difficult to put into words secondly they think that people won't believe them now the situation is worse when you have people who've had negative ndes because you know they, they might think other people will think of think badly of them um, but um, so there isn't enough research done into those uh, what there is it doesn't seem to be anything to do with the level of spirituality that a person has had but it could be because the experience hasn't quite finished or it could be an interpretation of the experience because lots of people um, describe going into this black space a black void but most say um, it's very peaceful but if that's the sort of thing that might worry you as you couldn't see anything then that might as you go through that cause you to panic so so but but anyway most people who even have negative ndes are still very grateful for them because they feel that they've had a chance to come back and address whatever issues that they 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 um may have um done if you like do you know that is extremely interesting for me personally uh, many years ago, I was sat in a physical circle and in one of the sittings, I went to somewhere and you use that word void. And I just went to this place where there was nothing. Now, when I say nothing, I mean the absence of everything. And I found that quite disturbing there was nothing ominous about it it was just my perception of it because even if you close your eyes you can still see the sparkles and the colors this was absolutely nothing and a little later in the circle the circle leader who was in trance turned to me 
and said, you have touched the void and you needed to understand it. And it, do you know what? I'm going back 12 years and it, it's there. As I'm talking about it, that whole experience is there, you know? Uh, so, yeah, that is very interesting. Uh, think that's it on the questions. Absolute load of very, very positive comments coming in. Um, Sarah, thank I love this one. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> thank you, Libby. <laughs> <laughs> and trust me, there are many, many more of exactly the same energy. Oh, there we go. Andrew. Um, well, um, um, I'm sure um, Lawrence can, can give you my contact details, but um, if, you, if you Google me or if you Google the um, Exeter Spiritualist Centre and send them an email, it, it'll come to me either way. But Jamie Aylward, um, I've got a hypnotherapy business, so, so you can contact me by searching for that. Brilliant. Thank you very much. I did put a link up to the Exeter Spiritualist Centre for the 10 Laws. Um, yeah. there's details on, on on that site of the extra email address which basically comes to me so so uh brilliant yeah. i shall just pop that into the comments box now for everybody there we go so jamie what an amazing night oh bless you no no absolutely and i know do you know what? I know this is a bit material, but I know when we're having a really good night because the numbers stay the same. And you've had just over 50 people totally entranced tonight. <laughs> well, uh, and that's on the live. And those numbers go up because this is definitely one of those nights I think that we need to probably go back to in a little while to pick up on a few points where we sort of like maybe not grasp it. Brilliant presentation, so professional. Thank you. Oh, bless you. Thank you. I, I, I say I'm, I'm hoping to persuade uh, Rachel, um, who had that NDE, to, to uh, be interviewed um, because um, in the communications I've had with her, she is such a spiritual lady and um, I'm sure she could answer lots of people's questions. So so um, if that if I succeed in that, I'll, I'll let you know um, a date that, that she's prepared to do it. Brilliant. Yes. Yes, please. Uh, we would love that. These Saturday nights, uh, for the benefit of everybody watching at the moment, these will continue with the church reopening. Um, so fret not. I put a post out about some juggling of dates, and it did seem to be a few people have picked up on it negatively, say, you know, with that intent that it's all finishing. By no means is it finishing. In fact, it will expand and grow and encompass more topics. So worry not. We are not abandoning you people. Um, Ita. Uh, Ita. <laughs> Jamie Aylward, Gita. And Gita, if I remember correctly, you are from Southampton Hospital as well, I think. So, yes, ah, that was interesting as well about the NDEs and some of the experiences. Just up the road from us, we've got Paul General Hospital, uh, and they've got operating theatres there. And this has been said to me twice on different occasions by different people that in the one of the operating theatres, they've got suspended ceilings, similar to what we have here with the tile. 
On the actual ceiling, behind the ceiling tile, there's a sequence of numbers. Oh. And if anybody has that flat line during their operation, they are asked, did you see any numbers and can you say what they are? Yeah. There is a small problem with that, and that's that it seems that the people who have near-death experiences are more interested in the emotions of people. So it's what their eye is drawn to, but but it's what their feelings are drawn to. So it's quite, and as these things are fairly rare anyway, um, the chances of actually capturing one of these things is statistically quite low. Right, right. And if that, <clears throat> as a working medium, I find that as well, uh, all, it's already part of my knowledge base because I often say to people, do you know what? When your loved ones say, I love you, they're not standing there saying that. We get the emotion. And we have to struggle sometimes to put that emotion into words. So, yeah, I totally get that about that emotion and feeling. And I know myself, you know, when you really link in very, very closely with spirit, in fact, one of your sides, you said, you know, you can't describe it because it transcends everything that we know down here. How interesting. Jamie, I cannot thank you enough. No, uh, thank, thank you for giving me the opportunity. It's no, no, no. We are indebted to you. And hopefully then, from what you've just said, we may see you sometime again in the future, which would be wonderful. Thank you. Okay. We okay. really, really look forward to that. Thank you, everybody, for joining us out there tonight. Uh, information overload, but that's absolutely fine because you can watch this again on Catch Up on the Church Facebook page under the Videos tab, or you can go to our YouTube channel, just search PCSC on Channels, and everything is uh, kept into playlists on that channel. And if you subscribe to either of these channels, you will also get reminders of when we go live again. Next Saturday night, we have a crossover from our Spiritualism Lyceum nights into our Spirituality Saturday nights. Oh, so many titles I've got to learn. <laughs> but uh, we've got the lovely Melanie Blythe back, who will be giving us a special trance demonstration live online next Saturday night at 7 o'clock. I need to liaise with Mel just to find out which platform she'll be happiest with. Who I know, I know when I ask her, she will say, I'll let you know after I've asked my guides. And I love that. So it'll either be on this platform or it will be a Zoom presentation. But that's next Saturday's the 10th of April. And again at 7 p.m. with a live trance mediumship demonstration. Jamie, just leaves me to say thank you, thank you, thank you. And to echo that that uh, sentiment, wow, wow, and wow. <laughs> thank, you. thank you, sir. Good night, everybody.